Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Crest Foundation Art of the Book in Europe lecture. Uh, whoa. And uh, I want to express our gratitude for the uh, uh, largesse of the Samuel H. Crest Foundation, who is sponsoring this lecture today. Our distinguished speaker is Megan C. McNamee, a lecturer in pre-modern art at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. McNamee holds a BA in Fine Art and Art History from Wellesley College, an MA from the prestigious Courtauld Institute in London, and a PhD from the University of Michigan. Her art historical work is richly informed by archaeological experience, artistic practice, and a lifelong interest in science, mathematics, and the natural world. Indeed, she has worked as an artist's assistant in painting and photography in Rome and spent several summers excavating at Villa Magna in Lazio. Since completing her graduate studies, she has been an NEH assistant curator for Beyond Words, Illuminated Manuscripts in Boston Collections, a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, and a visiting assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, as well as a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the Warburg Institute. I hope you're exhausted as I am in hearing that litany of amazing posts. Dr. McNamee's interests range widely, but center on questions of form, style, transmedial effects, and the interplay of intellectual and material culture. At present, she is working on a book that traces the effects of widespread numeracy on representation in Europe around the year 1000. Her current research also focuses on folding and tablet weaving. Dr. McNamee's work has been supported by the American Philosophical Society, the Bibliographical Society in London, the British Academy, the Samuel H. Press Foundation, very fittingly for this evening, the Leverhulme Trust, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. She is a founding member of Rare Book School's Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography, and her lecture today is entitled A Wrinkle in Time, The Structural Significance of a Concertina Fold Almanac. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Megan McNamee. Hey, thank you for such a generous welcome um, and introduction. Um, I'd like to thank RBS um, for the opportunity to speak as part of this series and share my work with all of you. Um, and big thanks especially to Laura Edom for him, her impeccable organization. Um, the research I'll be sharing has been underwritten by a grant from the British Academy's uh, Neil Care Memorial Fund and funds from the Bibliographical Society in London and my home institution, the University of Edinburgh. It's part of a larger collaborative project um, with Kathleen Doyle and Sarah Griffin to catalog all of the known concertina fold almanacs. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about the project during the Q&A if you'd like. Um, so, Oxford Bodleian Library Rawlinson D939 is a concertina fold almanac made in England after 1389. It belongs to a class of often exhibited but little studied folded manuscripts that do not adhere to the traditional codex format. Rather, they comprise a small number of parchment leaves folded into packets according to a variety of possible patterns. Here are two examples, one from the Welcome Library, and this one from the Royal Library of Copenhagen. And the one you're looking at is another concertina fold almanac like Rawlinson. Defined by their distinct construction and content, the concertinas form a standalone group. They're made of oblong sheets of parchment, often multiple membranes, sewn or glued end to end, and folded in half lengthwise to form a narrow strip. The strip is then folded in a zigzag pattern so that they resemble an accordion or concertina hence the name. 
Thus folded, these manuscripts fit easily into the hand and can be paged through in a manner not unlike their codex cousins. But, oh, there you go, you can page through them. Similar to a pop-up book, these pages open to reveal more information within. Cuts in the parchment allow a viewer to access into the interior without unfolding the entire sheet. And so here you can see what that looks like in reality. Although this kind of book may once have been common, their flexible form made them especially vulnerable to wear. Splits along creases and joints are common, as is heavy soiling and pigment loss related to manipulation, which requires touch across the surface to counter the spring of folded parchment. Damage may also be due to their portability. Designed to be carried down the body, essentially made to move, these books were exposed to all the dangers of life on the road. Few survive intact, and fewer still maintain their original structure. Such was the fate of the Rawlinson manuscript, which now exists in six uneven parts. So several of the long parchment sheets that composed the manuscript, once joined, are now separated. In this lecture, I'll reunite some of them and examine the ways that the anonymous maker, or makers, knit together a farrago of material all loosely related to time. Uh, the 29 extant concertinas vary in date, size, and place of origin and content. And I'm showing you two other examples here. The one on the left um, is now in Cornwall, and the one on the right is in Oxford. Yet, like all, um, all of the concertinas, like Rawlinson, our, our calendars are almanacs. This could be coincidence, an accident of survival, but the numbers make that unlikely. Portability may also have been a factor. Um, we all want timekeeping devices in our pockets, um, but it does not explain the phenomenon entirely. After all, Rawlinson measures 14 by 11 centimeters when folded. It is compact, but so are many codex form almanacs. I'm showing you one example which measured on average 15 by 10 centimeters, making them just as portable, even more so if thickness is taken into account. So my question is, why make these objects? I believe the answer lies on the one hand in the pressures that calendar content put on the codex form, and on the other, uh, and on the other hand, the expressive possibilities afforded by the concertina format. The latter will be my focus today, and I'll use Rawlinson as my primary example. Rawlinson D939 is now divided into six separate sheets. It's not clear for missing sections or if the sheets were ever originally bound into a single continuous strip. Um, if they were, it's unlikely that the manuscript would ever have been viewed in this manner. The spring of the folds demands local pressure and holding. Cuts in the parchment relieve this tension and break each sheet into smaller units of varying dimensions that were tailor-fade to fit a, a whole, fit a array of calendrical, chronological, oops, chronological, devotional, medical, economic, and prognostic material. The text is a mix of Latin, Middle English, and Anglo-Norman, verse and prose. Pictures, you will have noticed, predominate. For this reason, Pamela Robinson has included Rawlinson among a group of clearly related picture-heavy calendars that she calls lewd calendars. She lifted the term from an accounting role, enumerating smuggled items impounded by a scrutator at the port of King's Lynn between 1428 and 1431. One barrel contained various writing instruments, tablets, pen cases, inkwells, and a dozen lewd calendars, as well as 36 calendar cases. Robinson notes that at this time, lewd, often contrasted with learned, um, meant unlearned or illiterate rather than lascivious. John Friedman, who conducted the most complete investigation of Rawlinson to date, suggested that the book belonged to a rural owner. It does seem likely uh, that the owner had a vested interest in agricultural activities given the prominent placement and size of the agricultural prognostication charts, uh, the largest of which you see here. 
The tithing scale and money reckoning tables suggest an overseer of some sort, not unlike Chaucer's traveling monk in the Shipman's Tale, who equipped himself with a portable sundial for his journey to inspect the house house's granges. We might think of the concertina as another such handy instrument. Calendar content, language, and script point to a provenance in the, in the region of Worcester, England, and of Terminus Postquem of 1398. Oh, that's the money reckoning chart. Full advantage was taken of Rawlinson's unusual structure to link related information in new ways. And just to sh tell you, when you're looking at these flattened pictures, um, which my team is trying to purge from the record, um, I've labeled what is exterior and interior. So the exterior is what you would see on the outside of the manuscript, and I'll have these available for you to look at a little bit later, and the interior is what's inside. In the calendar, so this is section two, the second one there. In the calendar, arches enclose the labors of the months and the 12 signs of the zodiac with thunder prognostications for each month. Identically framed, placed end-to-end, -end, and back-to-back -back when folded, the series of zodiac signs mirror the monthly labors. So paired, an analogy between the movements of the heavenly bodies and those of earthly bodies is implied. Just as the zodiac provided a stable backdrop against which the path of the sun over the course of the year was tracked in order to observe time, human activity might likewise be viewed against the same backdrop and the passage of time thus observed. The labors and zodiac index the ecclesiastical calendar within, but to view the calendar, one must turn the manuscript 90 degrees. Uniform orientation is sacrificed so that all the information, ecclesiastical, terrestrial, cosmic, pertaining to a single month, could be fit, could be fit within the confines of its designated compartments. Such compartmentalization was standard in medieval calendars. Months were generally matched to various codicological units, page, folio, or as here in this codex form, lewd calendar, um, made around 1411, an opening. In Rawlinson, a desire for compartmentalization is balanced also with narrative interest. So a comparison will make this clear. Um, I'm showing you a concertina calendar in now in Berlin, setting the two manuscripts, the Berlin and the Rawlinson manuscript, side by side. Um, we see that the ground line in the Berlin manuscript, and you're looking at the labors of the months for each, seems to serve a similar purpose to Rawlinson's arcades. Both pictorial devices encourage a horizontal unfolding of the manuscript to see the labors in sequence and observe the year in full. So one could essentially um, look at an opening, see the calendar, um, but then stretch out the manuscript to observe the year in full. And the way that these labors are laid out encourages that observation of this larger interval. The Rawlinson calendar, this calendar section, sets the precedent um, that folds will produce meaningful and multiple correspondences. Um, they thus serve us as a heuristic. Um, and they help us understand an image that has puzzled scholars and which is, to my knowledge, unique. Um, at the top of the picture that you're looking at is written the, in Latin, the Imperium, where God is. Christ resurrected, sits enthroned, his hands raised and feet presented so as to display his wounds, which bleed freely. Below, bands of green pigment split at the center by squares of shimmering gold and tarnished silver alternate with strips of unpainted parchment. The latter each contain five crosses drawn in the same vivid red pigment that describes Christ's blood. A box outlined in green joins the lowest band and encloses three crosses and a squared backwards C. Outside this compartment uh, float a disembodied hand and foot. A path bordered in faded yellow and purple washed bands runs along the left edge of the image to Christ's side. It contains still more red crosses and a series of majuscule eyes drawn in a brown-black pigment. The picture has been described as a pared-down version of the Last Judgment, the hand and foot symbols of the resurrected flesh of the elect. 
The interpretation, though certainly valid, is, I suggest, not the sole and certainly not the most obvious when the image is considered in context. Indeed, I believe the confusion about the picture has arisen because of Rawlinson's current piecemeal state. It's clear that some of the shorter leaves in the manuscript were initially joined into longer sheets, among them the one with our image on it. Traces of glue are visible along its edge, and a minuscule um, A can just be made out. Um, apologies for the terrible image quality. So there you see the A. Um, a corresponding B um, is written on the edge of another sheet that also shows signs of having been glued. Likely these sheets were affixed um, to a thin strip of parchment that functioned as a hinge between them. Thus joined, the image of the Empyrean was immediately adjacent to the poem titled The Distance from the Earth to the Heavens in, rubricated explicit, in a rubricated explicit. Notably, the picture and poem are oriented in the same direction and each spans three compartments. Their identical layout underscores the intimate relationship between them. Taken in tandem, the, meeting, the meaning of the unusual image becomes clear. Uh, so I'm going to read the poem just because I know the text is small. Um, uh, but note that I don't, uh, the, the rhyme will not come out in my version of the reading. I'm just going to read it in modern English. Uh, Rabbi Moses, the good cleric, speaks and proves this a wondrous work, except where he proves it not, but through him that all hath wrought. He says there be planets seven from one planet to another there amounts the way of 500 year, and that is also as, as much space as a man should in an even place in 500 winter go, if he should live there too. And thus is from the ground to reckon even the way of 7,000 winters to the seventh heaven, and so forth to the heaven empire, there rests Christ the great sire. 7,000 winter and 700 year, a man must walk before he gets there, if he might live so long, that long. But first he should be all to driven, and look that every year without strife be of 300 days and five, and journey every day must the 40 mile way, and every mile must hold by strength 2,000 pace cubits in length. Thus tells Master Rabbi Moses and other great clerics, also it is no less. Uh, these lines, and here's the Middle English, are loosely adapted from the Middle English Prick of Conscience, a lengthy didactic poem that enjoyed enormous popularity from the time of its writing in the mid-14th century. They come from the seventh and last book, which was largely given over to a description of the heavens, especially the Empyrean, where it was said that God sat in everlasting majesty, joined by the nine orders of the angels and the souls of the elect. The space beyond the planets and the sphere of the fixed stars was understood to be the ultimate dwelling place of all good men. The anonymous poet of the prick cast this belief in verse, and at the dreaded day of doom, when all men should before him come, then should right-wise men come thither, in body and soul, both two together. He continued, attempting to capture the word in words the impossible delights that awaited the worthy Christian, peace without strife, day without night, summer without winter, all would be laugh laughing and mirth, friendship, love, and charity, and above all, one would bask in the sight of the blessed Trinity. The Imperium was, in short, a place yearned for, deeply desired, tantalizingly ever-present, and unfathomably far. To get there, one either had to await eschatological entree or, Pace Rawlinson, walk. The portion of the prick and conscience in our manuscript says little of heavenly joy. Rather, the focus is on distance rendered as time. Between each of the seven planets lays a span of 500 years. A year is defined as 305 days. A journeyer was expected to travel at a clip of 40 miles a day, with a mile being 2,000 cubit paces. At this rate, one would arrive at the seventh heaven in 7,000 winters. Reaching the Empyrean required another 700 years, if one might live so long. In traditional scientific sources, the distances or intervals between the planets were given in stadia, a Greek measure equivalent to 125 paces or 625 Roman feet. 
and then rendered into ratios. So for example, Pliny and the Natural Histories explained that the Earth was 125,000 stadia from the Moon, the nearest of the planets or, sphe or spheres. From the Moon to Mercury, its closest neighbor was half that distance. Between Mercury and Venus, the same. Venus was separated from the Sun by one and a half the distance, and so on, to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the furthest stars. Pliny refers to these ratios as tones and semitones. Thus, he tells us, are produced the seven tones which they call the musical dia uh, uh, diapason, or octave. Uh, distance is turned into esoteric sound, understood by ear and intellect. The author of the prick took the opposite approach, converting celestial space into terrestrial pace. In so doing, he appeals less to the mind, more to the body, specifically the foot, and shows the abstract span of centuries to be comparable to an earthly journey, a kind of pilgrimage. The Rawlinson illuminator followed suit. Each measure is meticulously pictured. The red crosses and majuscule I's are part of a simple numbering system used throughout the manuscript, according to which a point represents a single unit, a backward bracket like C of five, five units, and the O, ten. The cross stood for a hundred units, and the uppercase I for a thousand. Hence the seven green, green bands separating the seven planets, or spheres, are, as dictated by the poem, separated by one um, to the next by five crosses, or five hundred years. The seven eyes, or 7,000 years, that it would take to travel from the surface of the Earth to the seventh heaven were written along the side of the central image. The number stretches from the very edge of the parchment, the, the ground, to the uppermost sphere, stopping just short of the Empyrean. Besides, this is a path with seven eyes and seven crosses extending from the parchment edge to Christ, that great sire. Mundane measures appear. Um, appropriately at the bottom of the image in the sublunar realm. The 305 days of a year kept without strife are contained within a box, beside which are two majuscule eyes and the disembodied arm. The arm represents the 2,000 pace cubits in a mile, a cubit being the measure from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. Four red O's, difficult to make out in this photograph, but clear when seen in person, were written just under the foot at the very bottom, which represents the 40 miles walked each day. The Rawlinson image, though unicum, is not without precedent. Pictures of the seven spheres were a staple of late antique scientific tracts. The standard figure intended to show planetary order and orbit comprised a series of nested circles, evenly spaced with the Earth at its center. A similar figure was contrived to demonstrate the uneven intervals between the planets. Over the course of the Middle Ages, the number of circles multiplied as medieval authors integrated newly encountered Aristotelian and Ptolemaic ideas about cosmic structure and theories proposed by contemporary theologians. In this context, the space beyond the spheres, including the eternal immo immobile Empyrean, came to be pictured along with the planets. You see here a page from the Delille Psalter, a deluxe manuscript made in England in the first quarter of the 14th century, owned by and probably made for Robert Delille, a wealthy layman. The illuminator of Rawlinson must have had such figures in mind, but he chose not to reproduce what was arguably their most salient feature, their circular shape. The shift in format is significant. The circle was praised as a symbol of unity and perfection by Aristotle. Augustine and others. Likewise, sphericity and, sphericity and circular motion were qualities exclusive to the heavens. In his treatise on the heavens, De Kylo, Aristotle explained how worldly things, that is, everything below the moon, move linearly, upward or downward, depending on their composition. The movement of the heavens, on the other hand, was circular and superior. By narrowing the standard model, our illuminator effectively rendered the celestial and terrestrial terms. True to the poem, the image depicts a path, linear distance, and it does so in a manner not unlike contemporary maps, as, for example, the well-known pilgrimage itineraries drawn by Matthew Paris, like this one, now housed in London. Here, monuments and towns are connected by uh, bands stating the number of days it would take to travel between them. So from Canterbury to Dilbert Castle stretched a dis distance of almost a day. 
Even the lengthy and arduous journey to Jerusalem pales in comparison to the 7,700 years, 187 million, no, billion, 880 million paces it would take to reach the Empyrean, according to Rawlinson. The numbers presented in the picture and poem um, are literally astronomical, clearly intended to overwhelm and discourage a pedestrian approach. Death, probably even the apocalypse, would come sooner. And this, I think, was the point. Faced with the distance presented in profoundly human and terrestrial terms, but of a measure so great as to be utterly untraversable, almost unimaginable, the reader had to find another way. And handily, Rawlinson provides an alternate route. The Empyrean itinerary is on the outside of sheet four in the lower register. The upper register, what would be opposite when the manuscript was folded, uh, contains a sequence of narrative scenes from Genesis and apocryphal sources. The temptation of Adam and Eve, their exile from Eden, and, the labor, and their labors, followed by the murder of Abel. The interior of the sheet is dominated by a prognostication uh, table predicting the year's weather and other events based on the Dominical letter, letter. So, for example, when the 1st of January fell on a Sunday, making the Dominical letter A, one could anticipate a warm winter, stormy summer, expensive wheat, and good crops, as well as an unusually high mortality rate among young people and livestock. War and significant rise in criminal activity. The majority of the predictions have to do with weather and agricultural yield, though, as I as in this example, some refer to larger social, political, and economic issues. No matter what the year, death was on the cards for some portion of the population. To access the prognostication chart, one must first unfold the six compartments revealing the greater part of the Genesis cycle. Um, uh, so this is what it would be like. You unfold that, and then you can fold down the prognostication chart. So there to there. Uh, the pictorial pageant of the fall could not be avoided given the manuscript's mechanics. These scenes of sin, exile, and especially daily toil, pictured across four compartments, provide a sacred frame for the historical ex and, and historical explanation for all the uncertainties and perils of the present and immediate future so vividly rendered in the prognostication chart. But if you were faced with the dire predictions of death and famine, was also presented with a path to salvation far more expedient than, the than that described in the Empyrean itinerary. Below the prognostication chart are pictures representing the major feast days. These are introduced by a statement in Latin, whosoever shall have fasted on bread and water, these 12 following days will be certain of joy of paradise. Christ on the cross, representing the Feast of Easter, is aligned with the column of the prognostication chart devoted to the yield of wheat. Whether by chance or design, its placement manifests the connection between bread, Eucharistic or otherwise, salvation, and the body of Christ. Returning to the outside of the sheet, we find a similar pairing. The image of the Empyrean is adjacent to and aligned with the Assis of Bread Table. A sea statutes fixed the price of bread. As availability of the grain fluctuated, bakers were allowed to decrease the amount of wheat that they used. This lowered the size and weight of the loaf. Rawlinson's maker took advantage of the oblong shape of the register, the space, to present uninterrupted the long list of weights and prices of standard loaves, the shapes of which are pictured at the top. Overtly economic and practical, the table takes on Christological overtones when set beside the image of the Empyrean. It serves as a reminder of divine power and paradox. Christ resided in the distant Empyrean and in the heavens where he took the form of a king enthroned, but he also was physically present in the Eucharist, embodied in simple bread. So in this section of Rawlinson, the viewer was presented with a choice either walk 500 winters or fast regularly for around 50 or however long they might live. These seemingly miscellaneous elements, if encountered in a codex, we probably wouldn't assume that they were related to one another. But in the folds of the concertina, they become a sort of narrative um, and interrelated. 
Um, and as a confirmation of this, we can look to a, a, a quickly a different example. Um, and actually, we have uh, one-third scale models that can be passed around. They're nothing like the original, but they'll give you an idea of it. So Laura's going to grab those. So much smaller than Rawlinson, only five centimeters by five, five centimeters squared when folded, the Copenhagen manuscript that I showed you earlier consists of only a single sheet unfolded lengthwise to reveal the narrow register containing the calendar when it's struck by the column of bodies. So here you see the whole thing. And here you see that calendar register, which is vertical rather than horizontal. So if we unfold length, it lengthwise to reveal the narrow register containing the calendar, um, you see this column of bodies, of bodies, male and female, turning the earth, trimming vines, sewing, slaughtering, baking, and baking tools, a spade, a basket, a scythe, axe, and bread peel or paddle help them in their toil. Beside these figures are rotai, circular diagrams that show the hours of daylight and darkness for each month. Their placement immediately beside the labors invites comparison and suggests an aspect of the macrocosmic-microcosmic analogy, that is the relationship between the earth and man and the cosmos, uh, rarely explored. Here, the movement of heavenly bodies, in this case the sun, across the sky is likened to that of earthly human bodies in fields and kitchens. The prick of the compass is like a displaced, uh, that at the center of these rota, is like a displaced umbilicus. In Genesis, sun and moon were said, were created as signs and times, so they're the official timekeepers that God has given people, um, but other bodies, Potentially anybody buddy, might serve this purpose as well. Human activity was understood to mark time. We see this in the Encyclopedic Etymologies, a reference work that was a fixture of medieval libraries. Isidore, the 6th century Bishop of Seville, explains the origin of the word intempestum, the dead of night. Um, intempestum, he writes, is the middle and inactive time of night when nothing can be done and all things are at rest in sleep. For time is not perceived on its own account, but by way of human activities, and the middle of the night lacks activities. Therefore, intempestus means inactive, as if it were without time, that is, without the activity by which time is perceived. So here, human activity, our bodies and bodily motion, marks time as the sun does, and conversely, rest, the stillness of sleep, results in a period of timelessness. Daylight and labor were, moreover, linked by custom and law in the Middle Ages. For example, legal statutes dictated that agricultural workers were to leave their tasks while there was sufficient light to make their way home. And guild regulations like those of the ivory carvers in Paris limited the hours of work according to the season and forbid the use of, of candles. Returning to our manuscript and turning it over, we encounter the opening verses of John's Gospel. In these lines, written in cursive, underlined in red, and set off by decorated initial, reveal the sunshine illuminating uh, reveal the sunshine illuminating the occupations to be the shining of the sun. God made flesh. Quote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was the life, and uh, life, and the life was the light of men, true light, which enlightened every man and cometh into this world. Below the gospel excerpt are, are a series of prayers to the cross and benedictions. Maltese crosses executed in aluminium pigment punctuate the latter. Placed back to back, work and prayer become companion activities um, to pass the time. Daily labor and light are sacralized in the Copenhagen concertina, not only through the inclusion and placement of John's gospel and the prayers on the flip side, but also through the image of the crucifixion below. The pale blue cross appears to bear um, both the bloody body of Christ and all the little busy bodies above. And you can see that perfect alignment of all the bodies and then the body of Christ. Daily suffering in the form of work is here physically and notionally aligned with divine sacrifice. That is, Christ giving up his life for the sake of humanity. Um, and it should be remembered that the, the punishment for 
um, eating from the tree of knowledge was specifically agricultural labor. Um, and so uh, it seems to sort of all connect up. Um, a chalice catches the blood that flows from Christ's wounds, placed in the zone re re reserved above for mundane tools associated with the monthly labors. The vessel, along with the holy species it contains, is designated, according to the compositional log logic of the manuscript, as the instrument through which Christ works in the world. Its proximity to and alignment with December's round white loaves, because um, December, again, is baking, arranged on a patent-like peel, evoke the Eucharist. Um, and in many of the Scandinavian examples, uh, December is actually called Christus. Uh, the month itself is called Christus. Uh, the diameter, similarly, the diameter of Christ's halo precisely matches that of the roti of daylight and darkness. Thus, cosmic and earthly markers of time are combined or united in the crucifixion. Christ is shown to be, as John put it, the life and light and, of men. So I could go on and show other um, connections, but I'm going to skip ahead to the conclusion because I see uh, we're short on time. So most of you will have recognized my title, taken from Madeline Lingle's classic young adult novel about Meg Wallace and her brother Charles. Uh, the two journey across the universe to save their father, an astrophysicist, who's trapped in a dystopian planet. They're aided by three extraordinary beings that manifest themselves on Earth as a trio of absent-minded old ladies, Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch. The women help the children to tesser, that is, to travel impossible distances via the fifth dimension called the Tesseract. The concept is explained to Meg and to readers via a simple demonstration um, that Lingle pictured in the text. And I'm showing you the passage as it appears in my 1970 paperback copy. Um, and I'll read the quote. You see, Mrs. Wetsit said, if a very small insect were to move from the section of skirt in Mrs. Who's right hand to that in her left, it would be quite a long walk for him if he had to walk straight across. Swiftly, Mrs. Who brought her hands, still holding the skirt together. Now you see, Mrs. Watsit said, he would be there without that long trip. That is how we travel. Just as the fictional tesser or wrinkle joins physically distant beings, and specifically the earthly and the cosmic, the folds of the medieval concertinas close conceptual gaps, drawing together notionally dissimilar elements, uh, different in kind, that might at first glance seem only miscellaneous and certainly would be in a codex form book. Non-observable in and of itself, time, then as now, was tracked through the movements of bodies, heavenly, sun and moon, and earthly, human, animal, etc. So since time, or more accurately, times, was multiple and desynchronous, computus, calendar, or time reckoning, was essentially the science that reconciled these movements. Writing circa 1263, Roger Bacon defined computus as the art of, quote, differentiating and enumerating times that arise from the movements of external bodies and human laws. He continued, this division and designation occurs in three ways, some by nature, some by authority, some merely by custom and caprice, unquote. Unsurprisingly, nature, authority, custom, and caprice dictated multiple, often incommensurable, and at the very least non-simultaneous temporal cycles. Looking to nature, did one follow the course of the moon, the sun, the habits of animals, or the life cycle of plants? Who had the authority to regulate time? A local bishop, a lord, the pope, the king? Authority, moreover, shifted as one traveled, so did customs. Even the dispositions of heavens appeared to change. Concertinas offer an alternative experience, one of wholeness and harmony. Within their bounds, seemingly disparate elements are linked in meaningful ways. Their folds reify and amplify connections that might be dismissed as incidental in other formats, thus opening interpretive possibilities. Thank you. So I can also pass around this.
It's a part, one section of Rollinson D939 badly printed on fairly thick paper that gives you sort of a feeling of what it, handling the manuscript actually is like. Yes, I see in front row. Thank you. So it, it, that was a little muffled, um, so I'll repeat a little bit of it. But basically, um, uh, Liz Tavitdale was asking about um, thinking about other formats that dictate sort of how one enters into and engages with them in different ways. And you brought up specifically the Arnold Christie roles, so these um, uh, sort of pilgrimage roles that one encounters uh, the different, um, the uh, Arnold Christie. Um, often with prayers and everything. You also get itineraries, you get um, chronological um, uh, works, Peter Poitier um, laid out in role form. And so those really dictate a particular way of moving through them, though even, even that, having worked with some of those, you can really isolate a single like zone to focus on and shift that zone. Um, the concertinas, it's really interesting because they have one side through which one can access the interior information. Um, I think that that gives an opportunity for particular relationships, for a special relationship to be picked out between that side of the strip and what is on the interior. Um, and so that is done in some of the concertinas. But now that we've looked at all 29 of them, the original hypothesis that you will always have very close relationships like those that we see in Rawlinson being played out between interior and exterior, that doesn't necessarily pan out. Um, there are a few exceptions to that. Um, the majority do show these connections. So for instance, clustering, um, all of the monthly material or all in information about a year in a single uh, section. Or for instance, if you have medical tables where you need a medical diagram or you need the table nearby, those things get put next to each other. And then on the exterior, for example, you might have a key that helps you decipher the symbols that are used in it um, or other medical information. So, so there are these relationships that are uh, created um, and you generally do have to follow some of them. But again, you can look at these things three panels at a time, four panels at a time when they're folded by stretching them out and bringing them together. So it's, it dictates to a degree, um, but it, isn't, it doesn't foreclose different pathways and associations one person might make. Um, and of course, in codices, yes, there is a narrative potential where one can sequentially flip through pages, but we know of, you know, once you get indices and other things being added into books, or if you're thinking about, you know, the ecclesiastical, like, uh, books where you have markers that show you how to get to a particular section that you need, you know, to say the Mass, for instance, one is digging into a book at a particular point for a particular reason, so not necessarily moving through it in a narrative way. Um, so I think it's sort of, in some ways, similar. Um, that's sort of dancing around the point, but I don't think there is a finite answer. So. So I have a follow-up question from that, which is, um, is there something about the concertina form 
particular versus other folded books. Mm -hmm. So would, would somebody choose um, the concertina form over like the book mm -hmm. that you showed, yeah. um, which is not a concertina form? Do we see different, do we see overlaps in the mm -hmm. content of those kinds of books? And yeah. is a particular kind of content found more in a particular kind of book because of the yeah um, no that's a really great question um, here I'm going to show everyone this is the oh, this is actually better probably um, so I, I showed you one of what's called uh, known as bat books they were named that sort of playfully by JP Gumpert um, because they hang from your waist they um, and then you pick them up and unfold them and he saw that unfurling as like a kind of wings and they sleep upside down so um, because they're designed to be looked at and read by the owner so this is that other kind of book a huge number of these also have calendars and um, people have argued that they're largely for medical use although I don't think that's as tightly correlated as there are some that have urinoscopy charts and those I think there are three or four um, that have that and those for sure probably uh, medical contexts the others could have been used by various users that were interested in you know broadly calendrical astronomical um, information they have a lot more astronomical information one um, they also are the formats used for other purposes so there are some that contain sermons for example there's a lot more mnemonic devices and things like that and of course here you have a single sheet it's, it's basically a fixed format though the one in Edinburgh is fairly extraordinary in that it has sheets that open not just into a, a regular almost page-like format like you see here but an oblong that in a way that is fairly similar to the concertinas and it also has a vovel um, in it um, and so it's much more like the concertinas i do think the concertinas we only have calendric material um, and they also go into print so there are the 29 um, manuscript ones and then you have 11 that we found so far printed versions and again just calendars we really don't find anything else in this format so I do think there was something that must have been pretty pleasing about this format for that particular kind of content um, whereas the other again I think because it's it's a page it means you don't have to shrink down that page to make it portable um, and they're also sort of dazzling and engaging in the way you unfurl them and everything but um, they don't you don't get those large-scale prognostications so if in the codex that I showed you the lewd calendar codex that same prognostication chart that's you know yay big in uh, Rawlinson is this big so it all gets quite tiny and some of those prognostications like there's a lunar prognostication also that's about this long in Rawlinson um, we do get a bittier version in the smaller concertinas but again it gets really tiny if you're going to put that in a normal book so um, it would be interesting to look at broadsides alongside these though I think and poster type objects I found your argument that uh, these are meant to be read juxtaposition, sequential juxtaposition, very compelling. I think that makes a lot of sense for me. But what it made me think about is similar design to objects that might force you in the same way, architectures and glass. Yeah, yeah. um, and I'm curious if you can talk some about maybe evidence you have, maybe even adjacent, about how one might think about design. Right, how the designers oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. right? the I would store it. Yeah. But I'm sure that's not what they would do. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it's similar to how well design approach. Right. right? Can you talk some about that? Yeah. Um, so I do think it's really evocative that they use arcades in Rawlinson um, as this sort of framing device um, because it does immediately make you think of and it makes you think of what an arcade does it suggests both continuity but uh, distinguishes the elements 
Um, so, so you can walk along an arcade and each space is both framed individually but forms um, a longer unit. And so I think that that really is evocative. And of course you do have things like the Zodiacs and the Labors on portals. Like, so these are carved motifs. Um, and you also have things like the fall <laughs> of man also carved on buildings. So I think that's spot on, that there is something quite architectural about these. Um, and I think what's really lovely is if we, I think most people who study manuscripts, when, and, and certainly my students, they're like, this is, this is so complex. It's like, it's like a building. <laughs> um, and so you start to see like you actually can't just look in one room or one opening of a manuscript. You have to go in all the rooms. Um, and I think um, the, uh, the concertinas really make us think about books in that manner as these complex forms that we navigate in various ways where you're actually moving through a kind of space. Um, in terms of layout, um, some of them are really fine. Um, fortunately, the finest one is the Ashmole, is, is in the British Library, like where it's actually quite extraordinary illumination and it's wildly faded. Um, um, and so I do think in certain instances, now we've collected all this data, if we're looking at these against the known various illuminations, because again, the earliest ones are from the 14th century, the latest ones are from the 17th century, um, and they're made all over, it seems, all over England, a lot of northern England, it seems, and then also um, Scandinavia, um, or Scania, sort of Denmark now, um, and Germany are where we're getting them, so it seems sort of a Germanic, like a northern phenomenon. Um, and I think as we start to look more deeply at like manuscript production and illumination in those places that we're going to find friends. Um, but again, a lot of these weren't even photographed. So I think we'll be able to sort of locate them better in various um, scenes. And the um, printed ones, they get really basic. They're all single sheet. Um, and so the layout, it's like, right, this very basic layout of you have the hours of daylight and darkness, you have uh, as a large-scale rota with Christ at the center, and then you have, which I didn't show you in an, oh, here. Like that. So this is Rawlinson's Daylight and Darkness. You have that at the top, you get the calendar, um, then you get the sort of ages of the world, but they're non-standard ages of the world. Um, and then you get the same uh, stuff that we saw on the outside. And so it becomes very fixed. And that would be something where they're making it the length so you could do a strip of parchment. It's kind of your max length of parchment. Um, and you could do a number of them off a single sheet of parchment. And the printed ones are all printed on parchment. So there you see just a very regular layout. Um, again? So your lecture may have been about books supposedly for the Rudez. <laughs> But um, I think everyone would agree, deeply, deeply learned and has an added bonus, visually stunning. So thank you so much. We're very, very grateful to you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed Pat. Pat, thank you. And if you're... If you're interested, um, we so one of the things we're doing in the catalog is we're making little models um, that you can print as PDF to make your own, which that's what I passed around. If you would like to make your own, this one has a typo on it, but you can take one of these and take it home and make it for yourself.